1: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in.
2: Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 150 of the coronavirus crisis, the death toll in the U.S., Tops 100,000. But tonight, there is optimism for the future of jobs in America.
3: Tonight, new signs of a comeback. It's another step in the return
4: to some degree of normalcy.
3: From the world of sports to the great American job market. Plus, Disney makes its pitch. It's ready to open the Magic Kingdom.
5: We'll slowly but surely make steps. For improving the number of guests that we can accommodate in our parks.
3: Tonight, a key player in the decision-making chain is with us live. And we'll take you to one great American beach town's main street to show you how businesses are trying to fight their way back. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner.
2: Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Wednesday night after stocks rally again. Let's give you your first look at the futures very early, of course, and we are mixed. The Dow, though, and the S&P would open higher. As for today, more optimism over the economy reopening was the story on Wall Street. The Dow rising more than 550 points, closing above 25,000 for the first time since March. The S&P 500 climbing one and a half percent. So far this week, the Dow is up almost four and a half percent. The Russell 2000 small cap index up almost 6 percent. Jobless claims tomorrow morning expected to be yet another reminder of the toll this pandemic has taken on the employment market. But are there signs of a coming turnaround? Viewers will know Evan Sone as the man behind the Sone Investment Conference, but he also runs Recruiting.com. His firm works with tens of thousands of recruiters throughout this country, and they are releasing a new monthly survey tonight showing reason for optimism. We welcome Evan in. Evan, it's nice to see you. We normally, this time of year, would be at your investment conference raising a lot of money for a great cause, but here is is where we find ourselves. What are you seeing on the employment standpoint?
5: First of all, great to see you, Scott. And uh, again, we look forward to many years in partnership with CNBC on the uh, Sone Conference Foundation. Um, So Recruiter.com, technology platform, combining more than 25,000 small and independent recruiters with AI-powered Job sourcing and uh, talent matching. Um, And recruiter.com is filling these jobs with employers across the country. So, with this platform of 25,000 recruiters, we realized we have this unique opportunity uh, to hear from the job market from the people with the ears to the ground, really the recruiters. We created the Recruiter Index as a forward looking data set on hiring and job trends that we can use to steer. Our focus internally. We published those results last month and now we're sharing the May Recruiter Index with you today and will be on our website tomorrow.
2: So give us an idea. What are the highlights? We said we were seeing some optimism. Tell us how.
5: Yeah, that's correct. So we're seeing uh, some very positive trends. Uh, One of the biggest trends that we saw in April, the average recruiter was working on 12 jobs. And in May, we saw that jump to 15 jobs. Just to give that context, uh, in a good market, your average recruiter could be working on 20 to 30 jobs. So we're seeing a real nice increase. Uh, In April, only 19 percent of the recruiters that we surveyed felt the job market was staying stable and improving. And in May, that number jumped from 16 percent to 41 percent. So, again, a very big bounce back in a very short period of time. And optimistically, this really points to a healthy recovery as the majority of recruiters across all sectors, about over 60 percent, believe that the job requirements are going to increase over the next 90 days. And this compares to only 38 percent last month in April when we did the survey.
2: What's interesting is the the predictions of the the top sectors or industries, if you will, have changed a bit from April into May. Tell us about that. What kinds of jobs specifically we're talking about?
5: Sure. So healthcare uh, is now an 80, uh, 89% see demand increasing in the next 90 days. IT and tech see a 72%, and then really interesting. Last month we didn't have construction or manufacturing at all on the index, and now 67% of the recruiters surveyed uh, in those sectors see uh, in the manufacturing those jobs increasing in 90 days, and uh, 60% uh, in the construction space. So again, new new sectors that we're seeing uh, demand for in the next 90 days.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering how much you yourself are sort of thinking about the future of employment, how structurally it may change work from home and and things like that, and the different kinds of jobs we may have in the future.
5: Yeah, look, there's no doubt that millions of lives are really disrupted by COVID-19, and we empathize with everyone uh, who's really lost their job. And as the largest platform for small and independent recruiters, uh, it's really our mission and our responsibility to not only report from the front lines, but to really leverage Recruiter.com to help these businesses of all sizes, fill their open roles as fast as possible and get people back to work, whether those are full-time jobs, gig economy, uh, or part-time jobs.
2: Evan, we wish you well. It's nice to see you again. We'll see you down the line. Thanks, Scott. All right. That's Evan Sohn joining us tonight. Now let's bring in CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb who's the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. So, Dr. Gottlieb, this job recruiting data is good news. How should companies be thinking about the safest way to bring people back?
6: Well, it really depends on the company. And this is very good news. I think, you know, companies where it's an office job, where people face lower risk, have different sets of circumstances that they need to consider than think of a job where it's a shop floor, an industrial job, and many of those stayed open. But jobs where employees don't have the ability to social distance and protect themselves, can't really wear proper PPE, protective equipment, throughout the day, I think they need to take more aggressive steps to screen employees more regularly and screen them coming back to work than perhaps a job that's in a service type of setting where people can socially distance, where you could de-densify the office and create um, more safeguards within the office environment itself. And I'm seeing a lot of companies, and I'm talking to a lot of companies right now, that are talking about bringing testing into the worksite, not just to test people coming back, which I don't think we need to do, but implement more regular screening. What you're really trying to guard against is a risk that a single introduction of the virus into the workspace can cause an outbreak. We know there's going to be cases. We know there's going to be cases at work. What you want to prevent is a single case from getting into a worksite setting and creating an outbreak of any size.
2: So give me the blueprint then, Dr. Gottlieb. I'm going to put you in the chair in the corner office of the C-suite. You're the CEO of a Fortune 500 What exactly would you do?
6: Well, you want to de-densify the office. You want to try to create some social distance within the office environment. You want to try to segregate employees as much as possible into groups so that not everyone is intermingling with each other. But you have people in cohorts if you can. So you have shifts that are more more spread apart. You want to close common areas or if you have to keep common areas open and you need people to have room to take a break, you want to stagger the break time so not everyone's coming together at once. And in terms of testing, you want to implement testing in some kind of protocol where you're testing a representative sample of your employees on a regular basis. You can either test the entire workforce, and there's ways to do that at scale that could be relatively inexpensive if you're starting to pool samples. So you don't test each individual employee you take samples from each individual employee and you pool them together and you test the entire pool of samples. So you, you can only you could test 100 people at once or 50 people at once. That's actually how China managed to test 10 million people in a week. They didn't test 10 million individual people. They took samples from 10 million people and they tested um, a million samples because they pooled them into pools of 10. So there's ways to do this to leverage some of the platforms to do it more efficiently. But you want to get in place some kind of testing regime, I think, at most workplaces where people are going to be congregating together and in close contact, where you're getting a representative sample. So if there are cases spreading in the workplace, you're going to identify them, if there are mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic places. And finally, for people who are symptomatic, you want to have good protocols in place where they can go and get tested. You want to have generous benefits that allow them to, to self-isolate at home if they have COVID, to not come into work. Um, You also want to designate someone inside the office environment to give advice to people who are worried about the the fact that they might have been exposed or might have COVID-19.
2: So many differences, too, to consider the difference between a a corporate office park in suburban America versus the office tower in the large urban centers. Many different things have to be considered, right?
6: Right. And, and remember, a lot of the risk isn't just in the office environment. I mean, there's risk in closed environments where people are going to have sustained contact. And that, that describes a lot of workplaces. And so you want to reduce that risk of sustained contact in a closed environment. But a lot of risk is getting to and from work as well. And so you want to provide for measures that help people reduce their risk of getting to work and from work. So if People have to take mass transit. Maybe stagger the workday in ways in which people could get to work and get from work so they're not traveling during rush hour. Maybe provide for vans if you can or other kinds of uh, travel to work. Provide for carpooling. Ways to sort of de-densify the trip to, to work as well. Um, these are the kinds of things businesses should be thinking about. You want, you want to reduce risk. You're not going to eliminate risk. There's still going to be risk. There's still going to be infection. There's going to be infection in the workplace. Finally, another point on that is, You need to have the tools in place to do good contact tracing in the workplace. So if someone does have a case of COVID in the workplace, you want to be able to quickly identify who they might have been in contact with. And there's actually technology that you can use in the workplace. A lot of these apps that track who you might have been in touch with that we might feel uncomfortable deploying in a a sort of wide setting in the general public. In a workplace, that might be acceptable. People might be comfortable with
2: that. I want to ask you about the the tools and Contact tracing plays into it. Dr. Fauci said something interesting this morning, Dr. Gottlieb, when he said a second wave of the virus isn't inevitable. That's the word that he used, that we can still take the right steps to prevent it. Now, contact tracing obviously comes into that. I'm wondering what you think about the statement he made and whether you agree with it.
6: Well, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. I think some pervasive spread of this virus is inevitable. I don't think it's just going to go away. That doesn't mean a second epidemic or large outbreaks in the fall are inevitable. That we can mitigate. I mean, I think this virus is going to continue to circulate around the world. I think this is going to become endemic. It's probably going to become one of the circulating strains of COVID. And ultimately, we're going to need a vaccine to this to really fully vanquish the risk for good. But we don't need to have another epidemic, certainly not on this scale. But even large outbreaks, outbreaks in cities and states going into the fall, We do have the tools and the capacities, if we plan well, to mitigate that. And a lot of it's going to depend on what people do in the workplace. I mean, trying to get testing into the workplace is very important because I think people are going to have a challenge getting access to testing in the community. So the work site might be someplace that people can get much more ready access to COVID testing and also testing uh, mildly symptomatic and asymptomatic people. We can't just test people who have clear symptoms of COVID. Because we know a lot of the spread is from mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic people that if we're not testing them on a routine basis, we might not catch them.
2: Talk about tools and capacity. That's great. Do we have the political wherewithal, Dr. Gottlieb, to follow through on some of these uh, more necessary steps like contact tracing?
6: It's a great question. I mean, I think that some states are doing this very well and investing in this. I think other states are hesitant. And you're seeing some political um, concerns around contact tracing as well because it seems to have taken on a political dimension where it's perceived as sort of government intruding into people's personal lives. I don't think it needs to be that way. I think that there's a perception that there's going to be so much infection that if we try to do contact tracing, we're basically going to have the government tracking down everyone. That doesn't need to be the case. I think that we can keep infection below a certain level, that we can do efficient contact tracing and it's not gonna be intrusive into everyone's lives. Not everyone's gonna get a tap on the shoulder and say, you know, you were in touch with someone who had COVID, you now need to go for testing and you might need to self-isolate. I think we can keep the group, the number of people who have this infection or exposed to it down to a manageable level. Certainly South Korea was able to do that, Singapore was, Japan was, these are big countries. And so as we come off the summer, if we can get infection down, and I think we will heading into the summer and we head into the fall, we could try to keep up with this. There's no reason why we can't be optimistic and think that we're going to have the tools to keep up with this.
2: I sure hope you're right. Stay with me if you would. Dr. Gottlieb again this evening. A Disney World, a magical step closer to reopening. It was given approval today from the mayor of Orange County, Florida. Disney now needing the final sign off from Florida's governor. Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings with us once again this evening. Mayor, welcome back. Uh, good evening, Scott. I'm glad to be back. So you've approved the plan for Disney. What do you think the governor is going to do? And what will you recommend to him?
7: Uh, I have recommended to the governor that he allow uh, Disney to reopen uh, on uh, June 11th. And I believe that he will approve that. Uh, so we're waiting on confirmation at this point. Uh, from
2: We don't have any word from Disney yet on what sort of capacity requirements are going to be put into place. But in your own mind, what makes sense to you? in terms of the number of people that you'll feel comfortable with inside that park and others in the region?
7: Well, obviously uh, Disney is uh, a large uh, attraction itself. And so uh, the total capacity for Disney is one of those things that they consider like a trade secret, if you will. But suffice it to say, I believe that they're likely looking at when they initially reopen uh, they 'll probably be at twenty five to thirty percent of its capacity
2: and what are you thinking about when it comes to hotels both on property which may be uh, you know Disney in charge of versus those in in your in your county? How should we think about hotels and the safety and the security of the visitors?
7: I believe that Disney has taken all of the measured uh, steps to ensure the safety of its guests while uh, visiting there, at either the resorts or the parks or attractions. Uh, they have uh, put in an abundance of screening that would take place, not uh, only for the guests, but for their employees as well. And then they have numerous uh, sanitary measures that they have put in place. And then uh, they have created and engineered social distancing within the various rides and attractions. And if you couple that with uh, requiring uh, all of their employees as well as their guests to wear a mask, we believe that it'll be a safe environment. They will have numerous uh, ambassadors, if you will, sanitation ambassadors that will be located throughout the park that will constantly remind people of the need to uh, create distance between themselves. And I believe that if you look at it from the perspective of uh, And dealing with this pandemic it's like a war between what's dirty and what's clean. But Disney has really focused on a lot of uh, cleanliness uh, measures that will uh, hopefully keep everybody safe in the process.
2: You wonder and think about, if not even worry, about whether anybody's going to show up?
7: Uh, I believe people will show up. Uh, if uh, not just our local community, uh, the uh, July the 11th date is a date that we're really all uh, looking forward to seeing there uh, at the park itself. And uh, so there's uh, some pent up demand, I believe, from uh, those here within Central Florida and really those within uh, driving distance. So we expect to have a significant uh, number of people who will be attending, but. They'll be spread out. It's such a large park. uh, You uh, likely will not see people really on top of each other. And so I feel very comfortable about the uh, measured approach that they have used to reopen.
2: You are certainly in, um, you know, if not the epicenter, one of them uh, in this country when it comes to family entertainment. When do you in your own mind feel like things will get back to some semblance of what you thought normal was?
7: I think we're uh, a ways away from seeing what we all uh, believe was uh, the what was normal pre, uh, pre-COVID-19 pre days, pre, um, I'm going to say early March for us. It's going to take some months to get back to that level because the virus is still uh, amongst us. It's, it's alive, even though here within this community, we have a very, very small positivity rate. We have a rate of about uh, 2.8%. We've done uh, some approximately 67,000 individuals have been tested. And out of that number, 1,877 have tested positive. And so 84 to 85% of those who have been tested have fully recovered. So within our community, the Department of Health estimates that we have maybe 300 people who are still active now Uh, because we have 300 people uh, that means that 300 individuals can spread the virus very rapidly if we don't uh, really uh, adhere to the CDC guidelines and all of these uh, sanitation measures that have been put in place. So uh, I feel really comfortable because we see a significant compliance from uh, our, the residents here within our area where they are wearing masks and they're doing all of those things in order to uh, feel comfortable with reengaging. We know from a consumer confidence survey that we did here within Orange County, we uh, have a population of about 1.4 million. And uh, over 15,000 people participated in a consumer confidence survey. And from that survey, what they said to us, uh, uh, nearly two thirds of them said that in order for them to feel comfortable re-engaging, they want to see these sanitary measures in place. And so for businesses to be successful, like the large theme parks, they're going to have to display that kind of um, uh, sanitary measures in place to be successful Mm -hmm. in business.
2: Lastly, Mayor, uh, would you take your own family to Disney World or one of the other theme parks?
7: I look forward to taking my family. You know, my wife is a member of the United States House of Representatives, and she spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and our kids are all adults. But at some point, uh, I think, as she deals with the business of the nation, She'll return. And I look forward to some point this summer going and uh, just taking in a little bit of downtime and experiencing uh, what our attractions have to offer.
2: Well, we wish you well and certainly uh, wish you the best in your county's path forward. Thank you very much. All right. That's Mayor Demings joining us from Orange County, Florida. Dr. Gottlieb, I turn back to you now as we're thinking about many of these theme parks within the next handful of weeks are going to be reopened in some capacity. How should we think about that?
6: Well, look, anyone who's been to Disney, and I've been to Disney, it's a carefully controlled environment. I think they have the capacity to reduce risk within the park. Um, it's an outdoor activity. Uh, they can use ultraviolet light, deep cleaning on the rides. They can de-densify their, their food service. Um, there's a lot that they can do within the context of the theme park. And I'm, I really suspect strongly that they're thinking this through. You, su- you saw some of a preview of it in terms of what they did in Disney Springs, which looked like they were creating a lot of distancing between people, how they were queuing people up. I think consumers need to think about the risk not just within the activity but along the journey. Um, getting to Disney and getting from Disney, the risks you're taking in the travel and how you reduce those risks. The issue of the infection rate in Florida really isn't the operative question. Florida can have a very low infection rate. The issue is what's the infection rate nationally because a thing like Disney you're bringing together people from all over the nation, and in some cases all over the world, although I think international travel is going to be reduced for a while. And so it really becomes a question of what is the background rate of transmission around the country. And if it's sufficiently low, these activities become relatively safe, especially heading into the summer. I think we will get transmission down as we head into the summer. So I think there's a lot of things that we're going to be able to get back to doing doing differently, but we'll be able to get back to doing them. But as a consumer, you need to think about the risk across the whole journey, not just within the theme park. The theme park's a controlled environment. I think that there's a
2: lot that they can do to reduce the risk within the park itself. It's that time again for some Twitter questions. I've got a few for you tonight, so thank you for obliging us there. Our our viewers are are looking forward to this. Kathy Jones writes, Dr. Gottlieb, if my adult children test positive for the COVID-19 antibody, can they visit their parents?
6: Um, Well, it depends. It's probably not a satisfying answer. There's two different antibodies that you develop in response to the infection, IgM and IgG. Um, The first one peaks after about 10 days. The second antibody peaks after about 20 days, if, uh, the test probably tests for both of them and, and is definitely looking for IgG. So if, it has, if you have a high level of this second antibody, which peaks after 20 days, you probably don't have the virus anymore. You've cleared the virus, you've developed the long-term antibodies that provide immunity, and you probably are you know, safe to go out Uh, At that point, Uh, really, it looks like once people aren't symptomatic for a period of about two weeks, they seem to have cleared the virus and are no longer contagious.
2: It was interesting, something that you flagged today as well, the CDC saying that companies shouldn't use antibody tests on decisions related to going back to work. That's interesting.
6: Right, and we've said that um, on the show. First of all, the antibody tests themselves aren't reliable. There's a lot of antibody tests that, that FDA has said aren't reliable. The agency's allowed them to stay on the market. So you really need to be cognizant of what tests you're using. The Abbott, Abbott has a good test out in the market. Roche has a good test out in the market. There's another test that's going to be partnered with Mount Sinai. It's a very reliable test, has a high sensitivity and specificity, meaning that if you have antibodies, it's going to tell you you have antibodies. All these tests have a high sensitivity. Not all of them have a high specificity, which means that in a certain number of cases, they're going to say that you have antibodies when you really don't. And so what I would do if I got an antibody test um, is repeat it. If you had a positive uh, hit on a test, I would want to repeat it because a test with a specificity of 99%, that sounds really high, but that means one out of 100 times that you use that test, it's going to say that you have antibodies when you really don't. And if only one in 100 people have antibodies... And you use a test like that, that means in one case out of 100, it's going to say you have antibodies when you do. And in one case out of 100, it's going to say you have antibodies when you don't. So that's a 50% error rate. That's a pretty high error rate. And that's the problem with using tests without perfect specificity to test for low probability events,
2: and that low probability event being having antibodies. Speaking of testing, and lastly, for HNI from Victory195, I recently was tested for COVID and have had to wait five to seven days for results. Why are testing results still taking that long, and what efforts are being made to improve our testing? We've heard about this before, and apparently we're still hearing about it now.
6: Yeah, it really shouldn't. LabCorp and Quest are turning around these tests much more quickly. I would call your doctor and press them to try to get those results more quickly. It should be within 24 hours.
2: Dr. Gottlieb, as always, we appreciate your time. Catch you tomorrow night. Thanks a lot. All right. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. We do have breaking news tonight, by the way, from the White House and the world of social media. Our Julia Borstin following that for us live tonight. Julia.
8: Yes. Um, the president is going to be signing an executive order on social media tomorrow. Um, but we don't know what that executive order is going to entail, what it's going to include. I've reached out to Facebook and Twitter for their response to this. They both said they have not seen the text, and without seeing the text, they cannot have any comment. So no comment yet from Facebook and Twitter. Now, we don't know what this um, what this executive order will entail, but I do want to note that this comes after Trump has uh, President Trump has been in a bit of a standoff with Twitter. It started when uh, Twitter put some warnings that there might be misleading, potentially misleading information in two of the president's tweets. This is the first time uh, Twitter's ever done this. And in response, the president tweeted threatening to shut down social media platforms for being biased and silencing conservative voices. Um, and he tweeted that big action was to come. So this could be the big action. Uh, but it's unclear what this executive order will entail, Scott.
2: We will see what happens tomorrow. We'll be following it. No, you will as well. Julia, thank you. That's Julia Borston for us out in Los Angeles. Also on the social front, Andrew Ross Sorkin speaking with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. That is tomorrow on Squawk Box, a very big interview starting at 6 a.m. There's a lot more ahead, meantime, on this CNBC special
3: report. Finally, a plan from big sports. One commissioner's plan to get the place laced up and ready to go next. Plus, restaurant bookings are making a comeback. One business owner surprised when he opened the doors. And... We are going to be using um, effectively a form of armored glass for the car. A ride with Elon Musk. Before the break, images from around the United States on the 150th day of the coronavirus crisis.
2: Welcome back on day 150 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. Boeing is laying off thousands of employees as part of its plan to cut 10 percent of its workforce by the end of the year following the collapse in travel. The European Union proposing a two trillion dollar coronavirus response plan for its 27 member countries. Nissan plans a phased restart of its U.S. manufacturing operations starting on June 1st. And the NHL is one step closer to getting back on the ice as the league approved a return to play plan. Questions, of course, still remain on a return date. NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman joining us now. Mr. Commissioner, it's nice to see you. I hope you're well. Thank you for coming on tonight.
4: Uh, I hope you're well also. And it's always good to be with you.
2: Tell me about this plan, at least the framework as, as you have it and how flexible you think you might have to be with it.
4: Well, everything we've been doing for the last 150 days was to prepare and model every possible alternative and option we might have as circumstances were unfolding. Uh, And this plan that, that we ultimately agreed upon with the players and the Players Association on was intended to take into account fairness, integrity of the competition, so we could ultimately award the Stanley Cup, make sure and perhaps not perhaps, but actually most importantly account uh, for players' safety and health and well-being uh, and for the players and for other personnel and for the communities in which we play. So the notion is we're going to open our training facilities, let our players get back and start working out. Um, Many of them have never gone without skating this long. And then when we see what's developing and how they're feeling – then move to the next phase, which would be training camps. Uh, We'll decide when and how long once we see how the phase of of training facilities goes. And then once training camp's over, we'll go into a a playoffs that has a qualifying round and uh, play it out. Obviously we'll be playing over the summer and into the early fall. Uh, But this gives the clubs who were still in contention for the playoffs uh, when we had to, Take a pause on March 12th, an opportunity to see whether or not they actually would have made the playoffs.
2: Nothing, of course, is date certain. Is there a date, though, in your mind that says we have to start playing by such and such Mm -hmm. time or we won't be able to do it at all?
4: No, uh, it's really more the other way. Uh, We will probably open our training facilities the first week in June. Uh, it, it'll give players an opportunity to get back to the markets in which they play, particularly players who may have to be quarantined, such as those coming back from outside of North America. And then we'll, we'll probably in some point in July, maybe mid-July, be in our training uh, our training camp mode. And then we'll move in, depending on how long the players think that they need for training camp, then start playing. See, our health issues for the players are twofold. One is obviously COVID-19, and the other is our, our players have to get back in game shape uh, because we don't want them risking injury uh, by coming back too early.
2: I was going to ask you about the international players. You, you probably have the most international rank and Thank file in, in, in all of professional yes. sports. Do you know how many players, at least percentage-wise, have stayed in North America during the pandemic?
4: Actually, the last time I got the count... Uh, 44% of our players are currently in the markets in which they play, and roughly 17% of our players are outside of North America right now, based on the last head count I got.
2: How do you deal with with sponsors and and the kind of deals that you had in place and things that'll need to be renegotiated? How how are you thinking about that?
4: You know, from all of our constituents, whether or not it's the league dealing with the players and the Players Association... The level of cooperation and constructive dialogue has been outstanding. It's been very collaborative. And the same is true of our business partners, whether it's our media partners or our sponsors uh, and our licensees. So we we we're all in this together and we're going to all get out of this together. And that's the way we've been approaching. You know,
2: lastly, I, I realized that not all teams played the same number of games before you stopped. How will you deal with stats and the leaders and goals? And and I'm wondering, because it factors into player contracts and incentives and and
4: things like that. Though, though, as it relates to impacting player contracts and potential bonuses, that's something we will work out with the Players Association. Uh, The fact of the matter is the the regular season uh, has been concluded because not all the teams are going to be participating in the play-in round and then the playoffs, Uh, but we're, no matter what team you root for and have an affinity for, there'll probably be something in this plan that you wish was a little different. But when you look at the whole plan on, and balance, uh, it's fair. It has integrity. It'll justify whoever ultimately wins the Stanley Cup. Uh, and we're doing the best we can under extraordinary circumstances that nobody in any business has ever quite experienced before.
2: Well. We wish you well. Can't wait. Thank you. Really can't wait and hope to see hockey this year.
4: Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me with you. And uh, I hope you and all your viewers uh, stay healthy and stay safe.
2: Yeah, commissioner Bettman, we certainly appreciate that very much. We'll talk to you soon. That's Gary Bettman. He is the commissioner of the National Hockey League. There is a lot more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report.
3: Next, reopening Charleston, South Carolina style. See how one business owner got a huge surprise when he opened his doors. Plus...
9: One person's down. Your neighbor is there to help.
3: Main Street USA. Banding together to turn the corner. And... It's going to have an option to have uh, rocket thrusters. Rocket thruster. Yeah. Take a drive with Tesla's Elon Musk. We're back in two minutes.
1: CNBC has quick and easy to understand
8: business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC business news updates wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back on a day when the Dow closes above 25,000 for the first time since March. Let's see right now where futures stand as we take a look at how things could open up tomorrow. Fairly mixed picture. The Nasdaq would be under a slight amount of pressure off the open Dow and S&P positive. It comes after another rally on Wall Street. The Dow rising 553 points. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq also ending higher. Financials were the best performing sector yet again. And the biggest gainers in the Dow were American Express, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. Well, U.S. restaurant bookings are on the uptick since being shut down during the COVID closures. According to OpenTable, in the last couple of days, the number of seated diners in restaurants nationwide is up. That is good news. Tonight, we're speaking with Chef Mike Latta. He is the co-owner of two Charleston, South Carolina restaurants, Fig and The Ordinary. He opened his doors yesterday. Chef Latta, it's nice to have you on our program. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I hear, I hear some noise in the background. Does that tell me that you've got some people in your restaurant? Yeah, so
0: uh, I'm at The Ordinary right now. It's our first night. We launched FIG uh, last night, and we're about 50% occupancy right now. So how does it look like inside?
2: Yeah, how are people seated? What sort of table maneuvers did you have to do? What's the atmosphere like?
0: So there are several protocols uh, suggested by um, our state government to have tables eight feet apart, um, no seats closer than six feet apart. So basically like our bar typically has about 20, 22 seats. Um, Right now we have six people seated at the bar. It's about, I don't know, 14 or 18 people. So you can imagine it's relatively empty. And then like every other table um, is full or empty, however you want to look at it. And, uh, but you know, honestly going from nothing for the last 10 weeks, um, it feels like we're very busy.
2: 50% capacity, I granted, it's not what you, what you want. Frankly, that sounds a, a little bit better than I, I might have expected when you hear restaurants talking about maybe 25% capacity, where it becomes much harder, as you know, Chef, to turn a profit.
0: Yeah, well, listen, at 50% capacity, we're not going to make any money either. Um, but hopefully, you know, we're kind of leaning on the PPP right now. Um, which ours is about to run out anyway, so we didn't really get a chance to utilize the, the funds the way I think they were intended, and I think most restaurants are having that struggle. You know, we're trying to balance public safety and um, our financial um, responsibilities, so, you know, opening up 50% allows us to utilize the PPP to hopefully pay some bills and stay solvent to get back to, you know, to get to- to, you know, to become solvent and pay some of the bills that we left behind when we closed. But moving forward, once that money runs out, uh, which is only three weeks away for us, we'll be faced with a pretty steep payroll bill and our, our, our rents and our mortgage insurance, uh, our interest is really going to be kind of difficult for us to navigate. So right now we have a full staff. Right now we have, you know, I would say about 50 people in the restaurant uh, in both big and the ordinary right now. But once the payroll um, squarely lies on our shoulders without the uh, benefit of the Paycheck Protection Program, um, it's going to be near impossible to, um, to make ends meet, honestly, at 50 percent.
2: What I, what I hear you saying, and you correct me, please, if, if if I'm wrong, is that you might not have moved forward to opening your restaurant again. Right now, at least because you can't be profitable, but you were up against the deadline of having to use the PPP, so you felt compelled to do it. Am, am, is my story sound straight? So it couldn't be more accurate. Um, so, what really has happened here for us is
0: we were given the money uh, several weeks ago. I think we're about eight weeks into it. And um, so the clock was ticking. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the uh, Inter- the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and uh, there's a great group of us that have been trying very hard to get some fixes to the PPP, specifically with the peg date uh, of when we can start using those funds. And because there hasn't really been any movement yet, however, there is uh, some conversations right now, Ho- hopefully the, the eight-week period will be extended uh, to where we can utilize the funds outside of that eight-week window. So, like, our date where... Uh, we have to wrap up um, the intended use for the PPP is June 10th. So after June 10th, we're going to have a payroll burden that we'll, that we'll never be able to meet right. at 50% occupancy. However, if, um, we were given some leniency on the dates mm-hmm. uh, and a window of which we could apply it, well, then we'd have a fighting chance to get up and running, have the community feel good about it. But I, I don't think we would have opened it all in the midst of this, uh, you know, um, pandemic Yeah, if we had, if we can feel kind of forced
2: to. It. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a challenge for certain. Uh, we wish you well. Uh, we know the struggles that all of y'all are going through, uh, and we just wish you the best. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, that's Chef Mike Latta joining us tonight. Elon Musk's SpaceX had to scrub its manned mission to space this afternoon because of weather problems. The new plan is to launch either Saturday or Sunday. It will be the first manned mission to space from U.S. soil. In just about a decade, and even though Musk didn't get to show off the rocket ship, he is showing off his Cyber Truck tonight on Jay Leno's Garage, right here on CNBC. What would you change on, when it finally reaches production? What
9: do you think you would do?
2: We're five percent too big, and if we
6: just take old proportions and drop them by about five percent,
9: oh, you mean all the way around? Yeah, I don't even know
3: if it'll fit. We it. don't know. We're pushing the envelope. Let's see. How are we? I think you. You know, looking good on this side. Okay, here we go. Going into the tunnel. thats it's going pretty good. There we go. Yeah. You're
9: gonna have rocket thrusters. Um, yes. And what will provide the thrust? There's no fuel in the car. No, we're
6: gonna use ultra high pressure compressed air. Oh, I see, okay. It's a cold gas thruster. Okay, all um, right. The main thruster will be like uh, behind the license plate. So uh, for acceleration, it drops license plate and just and and that behind license plate is a rocket
2: thruster. You can catch more of Elon Musk on Jay Leno's garage. Looks fun tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time. There is more ahead right here on this CNBC special
3: report.
1: It's definitely going to just be a big morale boost to see things come alive.
3: Tonight, Main Street in a classic American beach town see how they're trying to turn the corner next tonight. Before the break, what our world looks like on the 150th day of this historic pandemic.
2: Welcome back. Businesses and resort towns are hoping for a summer boost. CNBC's Andrea Day talks to three entrepreneurs on Main Street in Moorhead City, North Carolina, on how they've adapted in the face of this crisis.
9: Moorhead City is truly the Crystal Coast and has become a major destination spot for a lot of folks.
8: We don't have a lot of big business here. It's uh, mostly small town. The community really supports each
9: other. Literally, we had maybe a couple hours to kind of change our way of life. and We made the decision to close for two weeks. People were sending me Facebook messages and text messages saying, I'm almost out of coffee. You need to open up so I can get some more coffee. So... We made the decision to do a pop-up day. I put it out on Facebook and, you know, some people just wanted a fresh brew cup of coffee. giving us a chance to stop, take a breath, revisit what we're doing, discontinue things that we were not finding successful, um, amp up the things that were good, and just kind of like have a reboot.
8: Down the street, a pet shop is hoping for a summer boost. Used to, they would come in and
0: buy dog food, but they'd also buy toys and treats and stuff like that. Now, it's a lot more buying just, just dog, dog food. Than, just an accessory. Our locals Ooh. around here really support us, but that summer boost gives us that extra to put back in the store. People, I think, are going to their local beaches instead of flying or cruising. Well, they just um,
8: opened our beaches fully this past weekend. It was, it was crazier than July 4th. Small businesses will also get a big boost from the town's fishing tournament. I literally called every participant from last year and we asked them about the events. Well, how do you feel? We're not going to be able to hold the events. Do you still want to fish? And everybody was just like, thumbs up, 100%, you know, let us fish. Last year, we gave away $800,000 to charity in our community. So you can imagine in a small town, that's very important. It means a lot to the charities that are here because... Other than grant writing, there is really no one else to give them money. You know, we won't gather, we won't have the parties, but the boats can go out fishing. That's about the best social distancing you can do, you know. People look after each other, and that's what they do across small communities across the United States.
9: When one person's down, your neighbor is there to help.
8: It's definitely going to just be a big morale boost to see things come alive on Main Street. Andrea Day, CNBC.
2: We, of course, wish everybody well. Up next tonight, honoring America's restaurants from coast to coast. As you know, each night we give shout outs to restaurants across the country. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC. Please use the hashtag. #ThanksForTheGrub for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can send us a picture as well. Tonight, we honor Colton Steakhouse and Grill in Cabot, Arkansas. The Rod and Real Pier in Anna Maria, Florida. The Rock Restaurant in Normal, Illinois. Walt's Pub and Grill in West Lafayette, Indiana. And Gino's East Chicago Pizzeria down in Arlington, Texas. On day 150 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. The number of Americans that have now died from the virus topping 100,000. Boeing resumes production of its 737 MAX, the Dow up more than 550 points. Don't miss tonight. Elon Musk on Jay Leno's Garage. It is coming up here on CNBC in a couple of hours. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. I'll catch you tomorrow on the Halftime Report at noon Eastern. Shark Tank coming up next.